0: came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a
1: man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response.
2: Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding.
2: I'm Ksenia Chmutina.
1: And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four.
2: Thank you for tuning in.
1: Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Hey, Kassania and Darian. How are you? Hello. Yo. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> how are you jason how are you doing
1: oh i'm pretty good just um yeah just taking along doing my doing my thing trying to mm-hmm. oh i always seem to say like every time we we talk or or do an intro um that i'm like behind in work or catching up maybe is that just like a, a refrain that every academic has it's capitalism that's what oh I mean. yes that's true <laughs>
2: Such is Absolutely, <laughs> no. I think, yeah, I'm. i with Darren. I see that.
1: Yeah, I guess like part of this is just like, what do we accept about reality? What like narratives have we internalized and made no- made like normal? And it kind of makes me think to like a lot of the work that we've done in the past on the podcast about narratives that are competing and contested. Um, and just the way we tell stories, and certainly a lot of the work that we've done in the past year or two
0: yeah.
1: has started to unpack that and and like looked at the disaster language that we use and why that why it's so important to choose our languages carefully, choose our framing carefully, tell stories that are meaningful,
2: right? Yeah, totally. You know what I find fascinating? Um, and I've been thinking about this since, you know, we started kind of really doing um, public communication more, right? Or public mm. engagement more in that who wants to publish which stories, right? And I think we've we've mm. all experienced that and how certain outlets just do not publish certain narratives no matter how you present it, right? Yeah. Um. Just because the issue... Is argued to be niche. I mean, how many times we've, we've, we've hit this with like disaster capitalism sort of things, right? Or totally. disaster narratives that are very much to the left. I guess where we all sort of belong. Um, and I, I find it fascinating how the outlets that consider themselves like impartial, you know, and educational even uh, just would not accept hmm. niche in, in quote quotation marks um, <laughs> disaster stuff.
1: Mm, well, to me, it was it was partly, it, or it has been a, a lot to do with when you bring up issues of power relations. Oh yeah, is where mm-hmm. where people get really edgy, right? Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, this is one of the, or this is among the many of the reasons that I really enjoy the storytelling and the work of our guest for this episode, Quincy Walters, um, who's doing work in a public radio setting. Um, Mm. and I think maybe I'm preaching to the choir. Um, like if you're listening to this podcast and you already know the magic of, (laughs) of, (laughs) of audio um, Mm. and uh, of, of audio conversations and storytelling, but Quincy, uh, I've watched just attend to so many different disaster stories that would otherwise be erased, um, or aren't flashy, um, in the way that we're kind of used to being bombarded with. This past year has featured numerous intersecting hazards that most everyone has personally experienced on top of focus their work on in the disaster scholarship world. The pandemic has crossed with seasonal natural hazards, political upheavals and other kinds of events as many of us drastically make changes to even our daily lives. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about these intersections and radio storytelling with Quincy Walters. Quincy is a reporter at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station, and has previously worked in Washington, DC and Florida. Thank you for joining me, Quincy.
0: Any time, Darian.
3: <laughs> and so let's, let's hop right into it. Uh, so you have a lot of experience telling stories through voice and through sound. Uh, Can you share with us what makes radio journalism a unique medium for sharing narratives involving hazards and disasters?
0: Yeah, so I think um, telling stories through audio during disasters is kind of unique in two ways. Um, One, it comes from just from a sort of practical standpoint, in that um, you don't have to worry about lugging around a camera or anything. Um, Usually what you need to capture a story is already in your pocket, it's in your phone. Um, And if it's audio equipment, it's nothing too cumbersome. And the other, I guess, interesting aspect about it is when you're talking to people who are experiencing uh, a disaster, and it's a time of vulnerability, and people don't want to be captured. They don't want their image captured during a time like this. And I feel like telling their stories through audio is less intrusive. Um, people are more willing to talk to you um, and sort of open up about uh, their experience. Um, so I think those are the two unique things about radio storytelling or audio storytelling during hazardous situations and disasters.
3: Wow. Um, I never really thought about it that way. So I, I appreciate that. And I, I wonder if you could um, kind of rewind a little bit and, and share with us how you got into reporting on disasters and what kinds of, um, what kinds of stories emerge in disaster settings that you find
0: important to tell. So uh, so I got into reporting on disasters because I'm from Florida, and that's where my journalism career started off, and Florida is sort of a magnet for hurricanes and other disasters like wildfires. So I know when I was uh, in Tampa, I don't think there were any major hurricanes that happened there, but when I moved to Fort Myers, Southwest Florida, um, in 2017, um, I was sort of baptized into that job because there was, uh, there were a lot of wildfires in the area. Um, so I had to cover that. And, um, and then came hurricane Irma later that year, but I guess just being a reporter in Florida, that's sort of part of the job. And, um the stories i like to tell um or the stories that i find important um during during those times i guess it just depends on on what's happening or the the nature of the disaster so i know in in fort myers it's it's also about sort of like doing doing stories before something happens um so for instance, before Hurricane Irma um, there was um, I lived near a mobile home park where most of the folks who lived there um, were were farm workers and migrant workers and and so um, I felt it was important to sort of share that story about you know where uh, do these folks go um, what are their plans before this hurricane, is uh, supposed to hit where, you know, it's, it's forecasted that it will destroy their homes. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, after it happens, it's, it's interesting to, you know, take a step back to see all the other stories that maybe people aren't paying attention to, or, you know, that don't come to mind. Um, I keep going back to Hurricane Irma because that was the last hurricane I covered, I guess. But um, you know, my station had gotten this press release about um, from Collier County, uh, which is like the Naples area, um, about archaeologists who were ecstatic about, um, you know, I wouldn't say ecstatic, but they were excited about the um, the hurricane uh, unearthing these Native American artifacts. Um, and so, you know, the, you know, you go down to the site and the archaeologists are there, the people from, uh, you know, the local museum are there. Um, and so this, you know, that was supposed to be the story that, um, you know, before the law was that archaeologists couldn't actively dig for artifacts. Um, but with Hurricane Irma happening, it's like, well, technically we didn't. Um, unearth these artifacts, nature did, so we can, they're for the taking. And that was going to be the story that, you know, serendipity allowed these, uh, archaeologists to get these artifacts. But, um, you know, I was writing the story, um, and my editor at the time was really like hounding me to, you know, do the story, get it done. Um, and I was just mulling over it for a few hours and I was, you know, thinking something doesn't really feel right about this story. Um, somebody's voice is missing um, and and then I realized like had anyone consulted with any you know tribes or anything about you know about what they're doing and so you know the answer was no um, because you know the tribe that um, that these artifacts belong to were extinct uh, but also it, it's believed that a lot them went down to the everglades um and it's and, and, you know their relatives and uh but nobody made any effort to contact anyone um and so that was the added element uh to the story that you know these archaeologists are you know legally allowed to to collect these artifacts because a hurricane did it but you know what is the sort of um moral merit to it um and that became the story um so i think just kind of thinking about ways you know disasters affect sort of everything um even archaeology but also um always continuing to ask you know whose voice is missing uh from this narrative
3: Um, that's a really uh, striking kind of story, uh, and I really appreciate you sharing that. I don't think I don't think you've shared that with me before. Um, I, I wonder, so you, you touch on this like tension between uh, your editor wanting you to go out and report on something that happened and like crank something out, and then a story, an important story that emerged um, that you felt needed to be attended to. And so, uh, is that a common sort of struggle in disaster context, the kinds of stories that an employer prioritizes and the kinds of stories that you feel like you need to tell, um, or is it kind of easy to sort of make that happen in a way that,
0: that you think works? No, I think that rift happens all the time between, you know, employers and managers, uh, editors and, and reporters, because, you know, as a reporter, I'm, I'm the one going out and seeing things. Um, as an editor, I feel like editors mainly survey the news landscape by what they see in, in local media, like whatever the local newspaper is. Um, and so that's sort of their idea of what the pulse of news is. Um, mm-hmm. but as a reporter, as someone who's out in the field, I'm sort of seeing things happen that may conflict with an editor's idea of what the, the news agenda should be. So it's something that happens all the time. Um, not only with disasters, but it, it could be sort of a exacerbated by a disaster mm-hmm. in, in some sense. Um, because when disasters happen, um, uh, I, I guess, you know, uh, a news organization's job is to disseminate information like very quickly. Um, and so, and, you know, that's sort of when, uh, you know, you could lose sight of, of, you know, other things equally important happening. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a rift that happens very often. And I think that,
3: that perfectly connects with my next question for you, um, because you know as researchers as disaster scholars we um we we encounter the pattern of sort of the events this the big thing happening to a community um that we've developed a, a research or a working relationship with um and there being a lot of attention, you know this town being destroyed by a hurricane this uh this community being you know torn apart by a tornado or something like that um and even on the research side, a lot of uh, resources being made available to um, sort of go in and and collect data, collect perishable data and, like, get out and, like, push something out. Um, and uh, as you know, and as many of us know, that the as soon as sort of an event moves out of a, a news cycle, attention wanes, resources kind of decrease. It's not really talked about, and it leaves many communities feeling sort of forgotten. And so, I want to know um, if you could tell us about how that process comes up in your work, um, and how do you attend to uh, attend to important stories uh, that you think still need to be told after popular interest
0: wanes? Yeah, that's that's definitely something that I think is also uh, sort of conundrum fueled by, you know, uh, managers, the perception of the world. Um, because often in news, something that is, is really hard to contend with is that when, um, you know, news organizations are only interested in a community when something bad happens. Um, so it's, you know, <laughs> you're going into a community where people are are traumatized and vulnerable and, you know, showing up with a microphone in front of their face. And they're like, you know, I haven't seen you around before. Um, and I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, news organizations and, you know, maybe even researchers just touching base with a community. And I, I mean, you know, when something isn't going wrong necessarily, I know, know, from my perspective, that is something as, you know, simple as, you know, maybe doing uh, an arts feature about, you know, uh, Black people or, or something something that's, you know, not trauma-related um, so that they know that, you know, you genuinely have an interest in this community. And that's something uh, hard for a lot of, I guess, white News managers to contend with because you know like there's so many you know um, fires happening that we have to put out and you know how do we justify um, sending somebody out for a couple of days to do you know this story but I feel like you know uh, just um, from a news organization standpoint like even if you can't grasp the just basic humanity of, of capturing somebody's story when they're not um, in pain or something, uh, people could see it as sort of an investment in, in, in a community that, you know, that when you regularly show that you care about a community, that it's not so weird when you <laughs> show up when... They're experiencing something bad, Um, and so I I guess just so from my perspective, I think it's just a matter of um, just showing up when when you know people aren't experiencing a low point in their lives.
3: Yeah, I, I appreciate that reflection, and I think that's important. Um, even for researchers to try to build into their practice, like not essentially being vultures, right? Um, like, um, and showing up when, when something awful or gruesome happens. Um,
0: I, it's it's an on-again, off-again debate in, in news media about, they call it like parachute journalism.
3: We can shift gears a little bit into um, talking about doing this work while there's a pandemic, a global event that we're all experiencing, um, some of us experiencing it very differently than others, but um, but it's affecting everybody. Um, you know, I've personally seen you in the streets covering Black Lives Matter demonstrations and, and local uprisings and local responses here in Boston during the pandemic, uh, and particularly during weeks. Uh, the National Guard has been called in or the police were heavily militarized. And so, you know, there are these moments where there is so much happening at once, so many layers, local issues, global <laughs> pandemic, um, national uprisings. Uh, and I wonder how, um, during times when it seems like there's many different intersecting hazards, um, maybe natural hazards, maybe the hazard of a police state. Um, how do you, uh, choose what to focus your attention on? How, yeah. What, what, do you cover? I, I know even for researchers, it can be just kind of overwhelming because there's just so much pain and so much to investigate.
0: Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, it, oftentimes I, I can't choose what I focus my attention on because sometimes, you know, it's, it's a matter of what's happening and, um, and, you know, when the pandemic started, that was, you know, my job was to focus on the pandemic. Every Wednesday, I would be on the radio at 530 a.m. talking about an update from the previous day. Um, and then, you know, George Floyd happened and sort of the, you know, stories that I had, you know, focusing on the pandemic had to be shelved and and it had to be sort of, you know, responding um, to this moment in time, so um, often, often it's not a matter of you know, any, mini, miny, mo. It's sort of like, okay, what what is sort of the immediate um, pressing story, I guess, of the day, and and you know, I think that was something that you know, not even you know, just um, people protesting had to contend with too. Like you know, this pandemic is happening, but um, but I think. You know, we both know that for some people, um, dying because of racism or police brutality um, is sort of a more um, tangible, uh, more likely tangible thing to happen than, you know, contracting COVID. Or even, you know, we see uh, health disparities with people uh, and, and COVID, and, you know, that's tied to racism too. So um, it's sort of just like, like a matter of what people, um, are expressing overwhelmingly is, is on their minds. Um, and that's sort of what I, what I do. And so, um, I guess, you know, before the pandemic, it's very easy to organize stories. And now it's sort of, it's, it's become a lot harder because sometimes, you know, you have a story idea and it's, you know, in three days, it's it's not even worth pursuing or it's changed or um, or you have to tend to something else. And, and by the time you're ready to get back to it, it's no longer relevant to what we're dealing with. And so I think it's just sort of been, been um, being okay with that um, because... I guess you said it's kind of, it's overwhelming. It's sort of like a fire hydrant and, um, and it's, it's okay to like step back. And, uh, and I think I'm really fortunate though, to work where I do, because we have, um, so many people who, uh, focus on so many things. Uh, so we have reporters who, you know, purely cover health. We have reporters who purely cover business. We have reporters who are exclusively investigative reporters. Um, but then I guess there's me who is just a general assignment reporter. And so I am kind of expected to, uh, tackle everything. Um, but, um, this past summer and fall now, um, has sort of my, my sort of workflow has been just dictated about what's happening. Um, in, in the world like you know last two Saturdays ago was I was at the Trump train and uh, this past Saturday was the indigenous peoples march um and and you know two weeks ago Trump had covid and so that was sort of uh, this story I had to pursue you know does this change people's Trump supporters minds about wearing masks and you know the legitimacy of this pandemic to um, the Indigenous People's March the, this past weekend most recently where um, you know people are you know the, expressing that the echoes of, of genocide are still on display uh, you know here in Boston um, so it's it's sort of just a matter of what's happening and week to week is different even day to day.
3: So how has COVID-19 changed the way you do your work. You you talked a little bit about, I don't know, like if this is the word that you would use, but like of the perishability of certain stories of having an idea and like a couple days later, maybe it not being the thing that you end up covering. Um, But uh, from just story ideation to the way you actually put together a story to just your daily life, how has the pandemic affected your work?
0: Yeah, I think in a major way is that I haven't been to work since early March. I've been working out of my apartment for the most part. Um, I, you know, do occasionally get sent out to stories, whether it's a demonstration or it's an open house, uh, doing a story about Boston's, uh, very different rental landscape this year. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's working from home. And I think, um, you know, in other disasters, I like can say like in Hurricane Irma, it was the converse where I was working from work and living at work because uh, none of us had power in our homes for a week. And so we had to, we lived at the news station, which was awful. I don't recommend it if you can avoid it. Uh, like sleeping under your desk is not great. Um, but also, I guess, you know, it, was, it it was more accommodations than a lot of people had at that time. But, um, yeah. And so I, I think that, you know, with an a, a disaster that is not a pandemic, like something like a hurricane, um, it, it, with that, there's sort of a sense that you're kind of like always on, like, um, even after the winds of the hurricane had passed, you still have this, you know, devastation. Um, to, to cover. Um, but with COVID, like this pandemic, it, it feels like, it doesn't feel like I'm always on, um, at least now at this phase of the pandemic, I would say at the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like I was always on. Um, but now it feels, uh, it feels less like I'm living at work. I guess it's, it's a slow moving, invisible disaster almost um and so i feel like it's less stressful at the moment for me um where you know you know you're doing an update about covid numbers in boston but between writing and getting an edit i'm doing dishes or 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 something um where you're sort of able to live in the lulls of you know day-to-day life at home, mm-hmm. and um, I don't I don't necessarily think it's changed uh, stories, I guess. I feel like, you know, before the pandemic, how I got stories was just, you know, being outside and seeing things, and there's less of that going on, but then again, there are fewer things happening. I feel like after Irma happened, there were maybe like, you know, four months of intense coverage, and then it sort of uh, dissipated. Even though you know people were still dealing with the effects of that, and with COVID, sort of, um, even though it's sort of um, invisible and and you know not as awful to look at in the sky or whatever, it's still something that's happening um, and altered everyone's you know life, not just you know people who live in Florida or on the Gulf Coast or something, mm-hmm. um, so, you know pervasive i guess but also um i guess with a with a disaster like a hurricane there's an a concentrated intensity um where it happens in this like specific point in time um and then it's it's for the most part over um and you know the people who are recovering from it are recovering but everyone around has sort of gone back to their daily lives but i think with with covid the intensity is is not as concentrated unless I guess you're living in a hot spot um, but like people who are not in hot spots like our lives are affected by it too uh
3: you touched on a, a few things that I that I want to explore and shift gears a little bit on um so I, I feel like you and I uh, have almost worked the same beat uh, in my mind right like we've we've both dealt with sort of the Merrimack Valley gas explosions. To some degree, we've both dealt with Florida hurricanes, COVID stuff. Worked with um, Muslim organizations and Black Lives Matter demonstrations. And I'm, uh, and I know for me as a researcher um, living in Boston, Cambridge, technically, uh, you've been helpful um, for me in matters like getting sort of government documentation through FOIA requests or Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, kind of finding local info. And I I feel like we have a really good academic and journalistic sort of connection on top of our great friendship, right? <laughs> um, so I, I'm wondering, like, how how can scholars be useful to people working in the media, telling stories about issues that we care about? and um, And what are some guiding words that you have for people trying to build these relationships? Because I've only
0: mentioned ways that you've helped me out. I don't know if I've been helpful for you at all. <laughs> yeah, you've been helpful with that homeless story idea a few weeks ago that my editor didn't take but I feel like it's <laughs> going to be a, it's going to be a story. Um and, and thinking about the way the world in different ways. Um but I think that this is a, an issue that I had last week where you know I reached out to a researcher about how the town of Revere, um, in East Boston, where forty percent of the residents are are immigrants, and how that town is uh, having a, a campaign for people to wear masks, and they're not involving law enforcement, whereas other uh, areas are are soliciting law enforcement to help, you know, pass out masks, and they've been very intentional about not doing that. There's a researcher. That I tried to get a hold of, but it was just like a, like a. I guess you know earlier I talked about uh, editors wanting stories to come out fast, um, but this was sort of a case where the story sort of needed to come out because it was, it's like a, a new initiative that they're trying to get the word out about, um, and so it was a few days before I heard from the researcher, and I think that in in that gap of time since I'm working on a tight deadline. Um, Maybe, maybe get back to a reporter quicker. Um, not necessarily like the, the same day. Um, but I think that, I think that maybe researchers and reporters might be working on two different timelines, I guess. Um, where w- we're trying to chronicle something happening now. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm miscategorizing it because, you know. Not an academic, but you know, researcher having having ample time and time being you know an asset to have um, more space and time. But for for something that is on a deadline, it's very it's very hard. So I think uh, I think, and also I think I don't know if maybe there's also. I guess a thought on the researchers part that if their research isn't done, then they don't have anything to contribute to, you know, a story we're pursuing, but it's, it's not that, you know, it's, we want somebody to speak to some, uh, something we already know is happening and, and somebody who, who can sort of contextualize that somebody who knows more about the situation than we do. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need a a dissertation
3: or anything. Um, And maybe I can um, ask in that space then, uh, and I really appreciate these guiding words. uh, Because, yeah, I I think as a researcher, it is, uh, you do get anxious about, like, how, how do I speak on something publicly without a very specific kind of paper trail behind me that, like, people in my academic community can, like, go back to or people can like fact check against in sort of the public academic record which is quasi public cuz it's kind of gatekept but um is there anything that you've encountered in reporting on covid or any any disasters um that you feel like is a thing but you were not able to find numbers or research or like empirical kind of facts written about on that you think you know, researchers should go and look into this and investigate this a little bit more.
0: Right. So actually, it's something that I learned covering that Indigenous People's March where I saw you on Saturday is that, you know, there's no good record keeping of Indigenous people and how COVID is affecting them. And I, I think that is a huge sort of phenomenon that should be addressed. Um, but also that just I just learned that like a few days ago, so I haven't really been able to go into that. But also, um, not sort of disaster related, but I guess it is a disaster with, you know, police brutality and um, the subsequent demonstrations that um, I'm sort of curious about how law enforcement is surveilling people. And the Boston Police Department said, it wasn't us, but it, it's, it, you know, I can't just go off of their word. And it's been sort of, um i haven't even had time to really look into like i said a, it's been a fire hose to uh ask other folks if you know they have surveillance equipment out there um but i guess that's sort of like the enemy of of you know it's, it's just time and and so much happening and um it's a struggle to sort of juggle um you know something something that's happened already, but also, like, things that are happening now, um, but, you know, even though the things happened, they're still important, um, but they're just not sort of happening, and um, I guess it's just, just time is is a big impediment, and not having enough of it.
3: We've kind of touched on it a little bit uh already um and i think we should you know address and explore and, and be creative about it but the, the the misnomer of natural disaster which you know sometimes confused with natural hazards and there's, there's a different intention there um but natural disaster is something in our field that we're trying to do away with as a term because we there's a growing understanding of uh, there being nothing natural about the suffering and destruction that we witness, um, during these times. It's all about how we've arranged our societies and how, where we've placed certain people. And so, you know, there's a large sort of effort to shift popular and cultural understanding of that. Um, which is hashtag, you know, no natural disasters. Uh, and so I'm curious because a, a point that, people in the sort of disaster world uh, kind of harp on definitely every hurricane season, but kind of anything, anytime something happens is I'm seeing reporting that says, you know, natural disaster in the headline or refers to a natural disaster. And I'm wondering for those of us who really do want to invite people in to thinking about this differently and have that impact their work as they go move through the world, like how does that sort of terminology shift, which it seems really pedantic maybe to um, to some folks, but it's kind of part of a larger reckoning with how we deal with the conditions that people live in. So how, how does that sort of change happen in a, in a major media outlet or like a newsroom? Um, and are there any like other examples of like recent debates over terminology that you've witnessed in the in the newsroom or been part of?
0: Yeah, I, I, how does that happen? It happens very slowly because I think in comparison to, you know, academia and research, journalism is a dinosaur, um, in that the rules for it have been, you know, laid long ago and sort of the people who are in charge of making decisions are sort of monolithic in <laughs> thought and, and, you know, <laughs> I, I can just imagine, imagine like, you know, <laughs> me telling one editor, well, technically, it's not a natural disaster. And then i saying, well, is it a mechanical disaster? So, like, you know, and, and, you know, there's sort of, I think, you know, with headlines, uh, people are trying to, um, I guess, from a news organization standpoint, you want people to get the story just from reading the headline, if possible, or at least get them to read further. And so I can also imagine a web editor, whoever's in charge of writing headlines saying, well, you know, if you write disaster, people are going to wonder what kind of disaster is this? And I guess, you know, then the argument can make, then you just put that, you know, the hurricane happened, and that's fewer uh, words. But yeah, so it just happens slowly. And I think, it, it, like, there has to be some kind of demonstrated, a uh, collective, large resolve for that. Um, because for years, people in newsrooms have been, um, advocating to capitalize B for black when talking about black people. And that didn't change until, you know, this past summer when, uh, America's, uh, issues with race came to a boiling point, sort of. And so it, it happens really slow. Uh, there's still, I guess, discomfort with um, people, newsrooms using the word queer, because a lot of people who run newsrooms See that word as a pejorative, and that's how they associate that word. And so, you know, that's why you get LGBTQI, like, like you know, there's it, it's it's very weird where newsrooms are trying not to be. I guess you know, there's there's like a kind of sort of like a mix bag in a newsroom where you know you have people who are trying to push the needle towards progress and people who aren't, um, who are not sort of interested in that or who that sort of new tech terminology doesn't make sense to them. Um, cause I know, you know, I was doing, uh, well back to the LGBTQ thing. And so sometimes there's sort of, a um, a hyper, uh, awareness or something. Cause I remember when, when, um, pulse happened, uh, you know, the gay club, I you know, I refer to it as that and it was edited to the LGBTQ like nightclub and it's like, okay, but I don't think that's exactly how it's built but also, I remember maybe last year or something me getting into a bit of a, an argument with an editor about um, I had, you know written um, sexual assault survivor and he was like, isn't it a victim? <laughs> and, um, and then I you know, tried to Educate him about this, and then he he resolved. That sort of um, survivor is what he called uh, like advocacy terminology. Um, and I guess there's also, um, uh, but I guess it, this it's not the same with natural disasters. But I, I guess it's also tying back to that sort of um, adherence to rules and not being willing to step away from them.
3: Uh, Well, one, I just want to like rewind a little bit and just make, I don't know if, if all the listeners are aware of um, Pulse being a a reference to the massacre that took place um, at the Pulse nightclub in, in Orlando, Florida. So you you brought up a lot. um, And I'm really glad that you made this link between how we use words and like, and our identities (laughs) and uh, and how our identities play out in this workspace where we're trying to do good work, tell important stories uh, that sometimes involve us. Um, and then how do we how do we present that to the world? And so I, I guess I want to jump into a question about, well, you know, your your Twitter is excellent. And uh, in your bio, you, you do make reference to your identities, right? So you talk about. Being a black Florida man um, and a member of the LGBT community, uh, or as you say that the alphabet mafioso. and so I, I want to know if you can share with us like other ways that these identities have intersected with the work that you do um, and if, if it's kind of come up in a, a hazards or disaster context or even some of this like uh, you know political organizing, reporting that you
0: also do. Yeah, so I think, you know, earlier I had referenced that um, Native American artifacts being unearthed by Hurricane Irma and, and just kind of sitting with it and asking myself whose voices are, or whose voice is missing from that. And I think just being a gay Black person in America, I think just as a journalist, that's always uh, a question that's principally on my mind. And I think when I'm, you know, thinking about stories to do, um, that's that's a question that's very comes very early on in a process. But even if I've been assigned something, um, that's a story that um, maybe I won't think about it in the beginning of the process. But I think as I'm writing it um, and sort of laying out what I know, that's a question that sort of, um, with like an incantation at some point, um, whose voice is missing. And so I think that's sort of how I, um, incorporate my identity into my job. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it, it's also just a matter of, you know, there's, you know, there's this misconception that journalists and reporters are unbiased, uh, people who are just very neutral about things, but that's, that's impossible. Uh, you know, uh, and so, you know, I'm looking for stories that would interest me as a person or stories that I'm curious about. And, and so that's also how that's incorporated into like, you know, my job as a reporter. Um, and, and I feel very fortunate to work at a place where sort of my ideas sort of about that you know relate to my identity are are you know for the most part supported and and uh, well received I guess and I, I know that's not an opportunity a lot of reporters have.
3: Can I ask about this? You touch on bias um, and sort of you know the, the myth of being unbiased and how I mean, I, I'm, I'm restating your words in a different way, but you know, we're, we're all human beings and we all like bring ourselves into the tasks that we do. Um, and work is not excluded from that. Um, I'm wondering, this could be identity oriented or this could just be a question about you as a journalist and like member of the media and the member of a certain kind of media. Um, that, you know, we're in like this, uh, culture, at least in, the the west of sort of increasing suspicion of members of the media um and increasing sort of uh suspicion of the stories that we encounter and i so i I know even on the, uh, the research side of things um and this is explicitly identity oriented you know i'm also a black gay man and a muslim and uh I, um, even though I believe in research, I believe in people writing important empirical accounts of spaces that are important to me. Do I like researchers coming into mosques that I attend and like trying to do a survey or trying to, um, get an interview and like, no, I avoid those people. (laughs) Do I like feeling observed and studied um as a black gay man. People in black in black gay spaces are used to public health researchers um that look a certain way, uh always coming in and asking about sexual practices, um relationships with drugs and substances, like over and over and over, right? And so as a result, I don't want to talk to people. Like I'm not interested in talking to people about my identity about my story, about my experience, unless I know them deeply and trust them. And I'm wondering if this issue of trust comes up in, in your work and do, do people trust you uh, when you walk up to them and and ask like, Hey, what's going on? Uh, And, you know,
0: and put a mic to their face. So it depends on the person, I guess. Um, I know, two Saturdays ago when I went to cover the Trump train, um, you know, I approached this couple who had Trump t-shirts on how I approach everyone. Hi, my name is Quincy Walters. I'm a reporter at WBUR. I'm wondering if you're willing to talk to me. And they said, Nope, absolutely not. We are not talking to you. BUR public radio, you all lie and you don't tell the truth. And you're so biased and you hate the president. And... (laughs) It's just very, very abrasive. And then I don't know how the conversation progressed. But I think um, the the lady and I both, you know, found out we both went to the University of South Florida and all of a sudden the tone changed. Um, and, you know, they still wouldn't do the interview, but they were less sort of caustic of people who work in media. I remember cur- covering Hurricane Irma being... Uh, you know, hold up in the emergency operations center, getting daily uh, press uh, briefings from, you know, law enforcement and emergency managers. I remember one time a sheriff's deputy walking into this press room saying, y'all aren't going to spread fake news about this, are you? And it, it's like, dude, you know, come on. Like, why? Like, wh- like you know, Even, even if it's a, if it's a joke, it's, it's a stupid joke, especially at a, you know, time like this. Um, and, and yeah, there is a distrust of, you know, the media and I, I, I don't like, you know, approaching people randomly and saying, hey, can you want to, you know, talk to me? I, I wouldn't want to talk to me. Um... But but yeah, there is a certain distrust of the media. But then again, there is sort of a reverence of it. Because I know, you know, also at the Trump train, this lady kind of uh, pulled over. She was not a Trump supporter. Uh, and she thanked me for being out there and chronicling this weird, well, what she said, weird thing happening. This event that scared her and made her you know, concerned about the future of America. Um, So I think for, you know, every vocal opponent of the so-called mainstream liberal media, there is someone who trusts it and values it, or at least, you know, is willing to consume it, not sort of ready to fight and disprove or, or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, but also, you know, like the people listening to WBUR are not going to be, you know, in the reporters are the enemy of the people camp. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I guess there, you know, there is a distrust of people who work in media, even if you're five, four, wearing yellow New Balances and, uh, yeah, you know, that does make the job sort of harder, I guess. But, you know, also, like, you know, I don't know. I feel like the the media has done things that do warrant scrutiny or, I guess, interrogating or revisiting. Um, but, you know, the blanket liberal-biased media um, is definitely not
2: helpful.
3: This has been such a a wonderful conversation, and so maybe it's sort of land and touch our feet back on the ground. Um, we've flown all over the place. And this is, you know, a recurring theme. There's a lot going on. And, and in the, the, the global pandemic sense, we're all pulled into a disaster process. There's no way to escape it. And then on this sort of a lower scale, identity-oriented um, in this way, you know, we see these impacts in our own communities, even as we're doing work to, uh, to uncover these impacts and, and, um, and share them with other people. So there's so much, there's just so much happening. And sometimes it, you know, there's no real way to escape the work um, you're going home and you're still t- technically in the site of the disaster. And so I'm just wondering, like, don't you get tired? <laughs> how do you keep going? And uh, what kind of reflections can you offer us about the way cuz you you work through these stories at such a rapid pace, just encountering so many people. Um yeah, h- how do you how do you stay okay?
0: Yeah, I get tired. I mean, I guess just like the idea of like talking to people is very exhausting for me and then like the process of going out and doing it. But I feel like You know, I think a reason why I like my job is that um, I can rest assured knowing that, you know, in some ways, at least maybe at least once a month, having some kind of maybe impact that matters to somebody, I guess. Um, And that's, that's, you know, nice, but also being able to sort of step back from things. I think working from home has sort of forced me to not I don't want to say value work as much as I used to but also I guess not put as much I guess weight on it in my life because I think that would make it incredibly stressful and overwhelming that this thing is the end all and be all um, but I think you know just personally you know having a therapist or a professional to sort of about things with and also having great friends like um terry and alexander williams over at mit um it it also you know helps and uh yeah i think becoming i wouldn't say well adjusted but better adjusted during the pandemic takes time um i guess as you know i've been sort of this never-ending crusade to clean my apartment and I guess having something outside of work to sort of focus on and spend your time on is is helpful and I just think it's a sort of about I guess this whole uh, I guess time period has been me trying like contending with balancing life um And so that's sort of um, an endeavor that probably won't end with the pandemic, but the pandemic definitely uh, lit the fuse, I guess, for that. Um, But yeah, and, you know, like the, the, what Flaming Lips said in that song, Bad Days, like, you have to sleep late when you can. Uh, So that's, you know... Uh, yeah, it's nice not having to, you know, get dressed and commute to work. Um, although I sort of, you know, you kind of missed those little adventures in the day or whatever. But anyway, that was sort of an amorphic, nebulous answer. But um, I think ultimately just a never-ending endeavor to be more balanced um, is sort of what's keeping me on
3: kilter. So we've been talking about radio journalism, identity, and whose voice hasn't been included in the story. And so we want to thank our guests and our wonderful listeners. And we are excited that you were able to join us for this conversation.
1: Our children. Our children! Our children! Our 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 lives! Our lives! Our lives! lives. lives. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast.
2: You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon.
1: The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe.
2: And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you.
1: You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time.
0: You have been listening to Darian and me, Quincy Walters, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast.